Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to the 11th episode of Alphabet Soup. I'm a little surprised that we're already at this point. I don't know what I expected. It's 11 weeks after the first episode. What else would happen? First time through the alphabet, there will be more, but we're just about to the halfway point, and we're at the letter K. And as I mentioned in the last episode, there aren't a lot of options for the letter K. Somebody suggested koinonia, and that's a, good, that's a good option, but I've decided at least this time through the alphabet to go with the word kingdom. I have a particular interest in that word based on my childhood history, which maybe there will be time to explain in part two of this episode. I'm not sure. Uh, Before we go any further, though, I want to ask your forgiveness if you hear some sniffing. It is stupid cold here. It's not supposed to get this cold uh, in Oregon, in central Oregon, this time of year. Uh, But they're talking about a wintry mix later this morning with maybe some accumulation by the time we get to evening. And this little cabin that I've converted to an office and recording studio um, doesn't have any heat. I've got a space heater, but it makes white noise in the background. So, if in the foreground you hear some sniffing, forgive me, it's cold enough in here that my nose is running. I'm going to try not to. Okay, let's get on to the word kingdom. It is used 361 times in the Bible, at least according to the software program I used. I had a couple of different options, and I don't understand why, but it came up with slightly different numbers. I decided to go with the stats that Bible Gateway gave me. If you don't know that program, uh, that that website, it's an online. If you don't know BibleGateway.com, you should go there. That's a really good site. You can look at versions of the Bible for, in all kinds of languages. I enjoy going to the Portuguese, one of the Portuguese options. There are about six of them. Uh, anyhow, BibleGateway.com says there are 361 times that the word kingdom is used in the Bible. Of those, 199 of them are in the Old Testament, which I'm no good at math, but thank you, Bible Gateway, leaves 154 in the New Testament. So, more in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. We'll get to that in a minute. Of the 154 in the New Testament, 120 of them are in the Gospels, and a relatively small 34 times in Acts and the Epistles, which is interesting. And Paul uses the word kingdom 14 times. So, there's some statistics If you're like me, when you start hearing numbers, your brain glazes over. But what that says is it's more common in the Old Testament than the New Testament, not by a huge margin, but used more often in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it is by far most common in the Gospels, and about half of the other occurrences are in the Pauline literature, 14 times in Paul. Um, yeah, and then 20 in the other, uh, in Acts and the other epistles. Okay, so what I did, I don't know, maybe three years ago, is I took all 154 occurrences in the New Testament 
and samples of the Old Testament. And I, I did that thing in my head that we talked about in a very early episode. I sort of wrote them down on three by five cards, again, in my head, to see if they fell into categories. And here's what I came up with. I think that the word kingdom is used in five different ways throughout the Bible. And so the first thing I want to do in this episode is go through each of those five and give just one or two examples of verses that use it in that way. If you have uh, the, the option as you're listening to this, maybe you're driving. Don't do this if you're driving. But if you're sitting down in a chair with a piece of paper close by, write these five down. And if you want, you can write down one of the references that I cite to illustrate that usage. Because what we're going to do is we're going we're to identify each of these five, and then we're going to go back through them in that order and talk about some of the implications for you uh, in each of these five. So here we go. The first one is the use of the word kingdom to describe an earthly political entity. And that is the huge majority of the 361 times it's used in the Old Testament. Not exclusive, but, but probably 90%. I'll give you an example then. Deuteronomy 3.21 And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. This was just before Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. So there clearly the word kingdom is used of a political entity, a nation on earth. Daniel chapter 4. Uh, boy, what a great chapter. We're gonna, I'm, I'm going to have to find a way to come back to this. I'm going to have to... If I have to invent another letter of the alphabet, I will. We're going to come back to Daniel chapter 4. There is a phrase that is repeated virtually word for word three times in this chapter. In verse 17, in verse 25, and in verse 32. And this is the phrase. The Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. And, and there, the kingdom of men, that's a reference to earthly political entities. Any government is called a kingdom then in the Old Testament and, and not so much in the New Testament. This is pretty much exclusively an Old Testament usage of the word. Okay, number two, the word kingdom is used to describe God's universal kingdom. He is the king and he rules over everything. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight. 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Isn't that fascinating? God is king over everything, and he rules over the kingdoms. Uh, now, it's translated the nations, but, but you understand what it's saying. So there are political entities, but God has a universal kingdom and rules over it all, and in that are the kingdoms on earth. Psalm 103, verse 19 the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's why we've called number two God's universal kingdom. 
Now, I said that the earthly political entities uh, comprise most of the uses of the word kingdom in the Old Testament, but here is the other one, and it occurs most often in the book of Psalms where it talks about uh, God's uh, rule over everything. The kingship belongs to the Lord, and he um, rules over all. Number three, now we're moving into something that is a little harder to envision because it's not physical. The political entities are in that they exist on earth in time and space. God's universal kingdom is easy for me to picture anyhow because it is all of creation and all that is in creation. Number three, God's spiritual kingdom. And here we're talking about all of the redeemed from all of history. Anyone who is related to God through a blood sacrifice, whether that's through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross or prior to that, God's accepted sacrifice of a lamb as a temporary payment until Christ, we're going to describe that as God's spiritual kingdom. And it is made up of people. The people in the spiritual kingdom are all the redeemed from all time. Listen to Colossians 1.13. Yeah, this is Paul. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so there are two options. We were in, option number one, the domain of darkness, and now we are in, option number two, the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay, that's going to be true of anybody who, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, anyone who was born with a sin nature and therefore came into this world in the domain of darkness. But if they exercise faith, Abraham was saved by faith. Huh? God declared Abraham righteous on the basis of his faith. Then Abraham and David and all of the other believers of the Old Testament and you and I became members of God's spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. There is stuff to talk about there that we don't have time for, but it's interesting that he calls it his, uh, the kingdom of his beloved son, that, that Christ has, if you will, possession of it. Why? By virtue of the fact that they are there, you and I are there, based on what Christ did for us. He paid the price, therefore he owns us. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a trail we could go down, we just don't have time. Number four, the millennial kingdom. And when we come back through these, we'll talk at, uh, about this at greater length. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. There is a future kingdom coming. And, and it is spelled out in quite a bit of detail in Revelation chapter 20 and in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, 26. It is a time when Jesus Christ will return to earth and enter Jerusalem and set up his throne and rule the earth from Jerusalem from the capital of Israel, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. During that millennium, 
Satan will be bound and will not have, will not have access or operation. That, that's why it's called the millennial kingdom. And that refers to a, a thousand-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem that is eschatological, that is yet future. And then in Revelation 20, I mentioned, Revelation 20, verse 4, they came to life, the martyrs, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That verse doesn't use the word kingdom, but I, I added it because it clearly refers to the kingdom when it says the reign of Christ. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The fifth and final category of uh, verses that talk about a kingdom, I have chosen to call the eschatological kingdom. Now, I just said that the millennial kingdom is eschatological um, in the sense that it is yet future. Here, when I talk about the eschatological kingdom, I'm talking about eternity future. What happens after the millennial kingdom? What happens is Satan is loosed from the pit. He comes and raises a rebellion. That rebellion is put down. Uh, I love that. There's one verse that says, and, and Christ destroyed him. <laughs> it's, it's the word of his mouth. They're destroyed. Then there is the great white throne judgment in which the unsaved dead are brought before. And in, in order to establish that God acts justly, their names are not found written in the book of life. And so the books are opened that contain uh, their actions they are found to be sinful and therefore deserving of judgment because their names aren't written in the book of life and sentenced to an eternity in hell. And then comes the new heavens and the new earth and eternity future. And we are calling that category number five, the eschatological kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither thee. And then he lists a whole categories, uh, I'm sorry, several categories of people. Uh, idolaters, adulterers, uh, the homosexual, so forth. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There are so many wonderful things about those three verses. These people, because of their sin and ultimately because they did not accept by faith what Christ did for them on the cross in payment for their sins, remain under God's judgment. Those of us who have accepted what Christ did for us, who do believe that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. We're not that anymore. He says, such were some of you, these categories of sins, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. There's our J word. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, back to the first line in verse six. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That kingdom is clearly future. He uses the word inherit and talks about it as something that is coming. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it seems to not be the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. It seems to be that final kingdom 
that comes after the great white throne. Okay, so there we have our five categories. Earthly political entities, God's universal kingdom um, that is his sovereign rule over everything, God's spiritual kingdom, and that is the assembled uh, group of all of the redeemed from all of time. They are his subjects. We are his kingdom in that very special sense. The millennial kingdom that is yet future when Christ reigns for a thousand years on earth, and then the final eschatological kingdom that is the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, now before we go on and start talking about uh, some of the implications of these five categories, uh, the reason for, for going through them is because we can't be sloppy here or we're going to end up with a mess on our hands. We can't read political entities' kingdom and confuse it with God's spiritual kingdom, which is all, the, all of the believers. We can't read in the Bible about the millennial kingdom and confuse that with God's universal kingdom that is his reign over all of creation, over all things. And, and quite recently, uh, yeah, I, I won't tell us, but quite recently, I was part of a discussion. There were three of us that sat on a panel for another podcast, not mine, obviously, and the discussion was the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. I'm going to come back to this. Uh, as I said, when we go through these a second time, I'm going to come back to it. But the discussion was, what is the millennial kingdom and what is our relationship to it? And what, what drove me crazy, frankly, is that these two other guys were grabbing verses that had the word kingdom in them and making them apply to the millennial kingdom. And you can't do that. That is sloppy. And when you do that... You, as I said, you're going to end up with a mess on your hands. You're going to say things about the millennial kingdom that don't fit because the use of the word kingdom in that context is talking about one of the other of the five. It's talking about one, two, three, or five. I need to remember, you need to remember that the word kingdom in the Bible does not have one meaning only. Sometimes it's fairly easy for me to tell the difference. So, for example, when I read... Uh, so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. That one's pretty obvious. It gets a little trickier. I have to be more careful when I read in the Gospels and when I read in the epistles, when I read in the letters, that word kingdom. There I have to be more discerning. And that's what we're going to do uh, in the second half of this podcast. I say second half, but I'm going to have to start now because I can't go through all five of these in part two of the letter K. So let's take a look at the first of the five, and that is earthly political entities, and just make a couple of quick observations from that. And I want to go back to Daniel chapter four. And like I said, that's, uh, that's a powerful chapter. And three times that phrase occurs. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Uh, this is a chapter that describes a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. It's actually written by Nebuchadnezzar, the chapter is. He tells of a dream he had. He called in his dream guys and none of them could figure it out. Daniel comes in and interprets the dream. And then in part three, 
the dream comes true. So first the dream, then Daniel's interpretation, and then the dream comes true in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And in each of the, those three movements, if you will, that phrase gets repeated. The Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Uh, what that tells us is that the kingdoms of men are not the kingdoms of men in the fullest sense. They're the kingdoms of God. That is to say, he is sovereign, and he decides that Nebuchadnezzar at that point in time was going to be the king in Babylon. And if you, if you know Old Testament history, you know how quickly that changed. It changed overnight. It went from Nebuchadnezzar's grandson into the hands of the Medo-Persians. And then it went from the hands of the Medo-Persians into the hands of the Greeks, and from there into the hands of the Romans. And each of those was done in accordance with the sovereign will of God, because he decides. And that is why in Romans chapter 13, he tells us we're to submit to the governing authorities because they are there at God's sovereign will. And if we disobey them, we are disobeying the God who put them there. Okay, I wish we had more time to talk about this. It really could be a full episode on its own. But I am deeply troubled by what I hear and read from believers who should know better, who talk disparagingly about a president who was or a president who is, and forget that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he wills. That President Trump was President Trump because God decided that. And President Biden is President Biden because God directed that according to his sovereign will. And we talk as though this were some great evil that so-and-so was or is president. Do you realize when you say that you are accusing God of some great evil? Um, how, do we, how do we reconcile the fact that we elected that man to be president and that God in his sovereign will decreed it? Both are true. We elected him. God decreed that he should be. And I have an obligation to vote. I believe I have a moral obligation to vote. And I have an equal moral and spiritual obligation to submit to that rulership. And Paul says in Romans 13, to give respect to whom respect is due. And he says that in the context of this teaching that God, uh, God has placed that man in authority over us and we are to respond to him in that light. I don't understand what has happened to the contemporary, many of the contemporary evangelical churches where we have forgotten that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Now, again, it is another discussion for another episode, and, and we'll have it, I promise, uh, about this confluence of the free will of man and the sovereign will of God and how those come together. But both are true. We elected, at this point in time, President Biden. I don't know when you're listening to, to this and who will be president when you listen. But we elected President Biden. And God, by sovereign decree, God who does all things well, put him there. That was true of our current president, is true. It was cur uh, uh, true of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and of Nero, and of etc., etc., etc. 
When you speak ill of the president, you are speaking ill of the sovereign God who put him there. And that is, is put quite plainly, that is sinful. So let's get rid of that kind of talk. Let's give honor to whom honor is due. And the ruler that God put in place is worthy of that honor. Okay, we've gotten one of the five done, and there's so much more I wanted to say, but it's time to end this episode, uh, part one of this episode, and we'll go on to part two and talk about the other four, um, again, probably all too briefly. I hope then that you'll join us for part two of the letter K, Kingdom. Kingdom.